Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of MedTech POV, the podcast brought to you by AdvaMed, the world's largest trade association for medical technology companies. I'm your host, Scott Whitaker, President and CEO of AdvaMed. And today, we're pleased to have with us Steve McMillan, Chairman, President, and CEO of Hologic, a company that has had a huge impact on patient care, but especially throughout the pandemic, which of course we'll get into a bit later. Prior to his time with Hologic, Steve served as President and CEO of Stryker, where he successfully led the company through a series of key strategic acquisitions, the launch of a number of products within the orthopedic implants and medical instrumentation businesses and delivered strong operating performance as well, with revenue tripling from $2.8 billion to $8.3 billion between 2003 and 2011. Steve began his incredible career with Procter & Gamble in 1985. He holds a BA in economics from Davidson College and is a graduate of Harvard's Business School as well. And he's a member, thankfully, of our board of directors here at AdvaMed. All right. Welcome, Steve. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Scott, for having us. You know, I always like to start these off by giving the listener a sense of the person behind the CEO job and who you are, where you came from, and kind of what what motivates you, even back to your upbringing. So if it's all right, let's start off early. Where'd you grow up and what kind of led you into the medical technology field? Sure. You know, I grew up in uh, central New Jersey, which is about that 10-mile strip between South Jersey and North Jersey. So <laughs> uh, I was born in uh, Trenton, New Jersey, and literally raised in a few towns just right up the river from there, raised you know, largely by a single mom and my older sister during those times. So it was in my roots, and then I've kind of traveled the world since. Yeah. You went from there to uh, college down at Davidson, right, in North Carolina. What led you there? Yeah, actually, what led me there was golf, oddly enough. So I ended up getting a financial aid package and was able to to play on the golf team there. It was obviously not nearly as good then as it is now. That was it sort of pulled me from the Northeast down to the Southeast and played my first golf tournament my freshman year of college and thought I was okay in New Jersey and realized I better study because uh, <laughs> I am not going to make a career playing golf against these guys. Yeah. Well, I've seen you play golf, Steve, and you made a good career choice going med tech, but I think I think you could have been a good golfer too. You still hit the ball really well. So uh, uh, you're being generous, thanks. <laughs> now you, you have a reputation for those who don't know, Steve not only is a great CEO with a tremendous medical technology history, but rumor is he's the best golfer in the med tech CEO club. So it's carried over. So uh, it's fun to have a golfer on the show. We'll keep that to an unverified rumor. (laughs) (laughs) You then went to Harvard, I think, didn't you, Steve, for your MBA and spent some time up in the Northeast? I actually did that much later. I got what basically the executive ed program at Harvard, which turned out to be much later. It was uh, after I'd been working about 15 years or so. You know, that ended up being a great experience as well in terms of broadening my mind you know, at a different point in my career. So I'm not officially an MBA, but uh, did spend uh, about 10 weeks on the Harvard campus trying to get a little smarter. Yeah, a great experience, I'm sure. And I'm sure you learned a lot. Did I have it right? You started your career at Procter & Gamble and then really kind of worked your way through the medical technology community to where you are today? 
Yeah, yeah. I started at P&G right out of Davidson. They had uh, recruited me and I went into their marketing area. And then about three and a half, four years later, I got recruited by Johnson & Johnson. And it was really J&J was a chance to move back closer to home, closer to my mom and get back to the East Coast. But in so doing, I suddenly realized, you know, I was in healthcare for the first time. Right. And I hadn't ever really thought about it much until suddenly I just felt like I was so much more motivated mm. to be working and, and building products that made a bigger difference in people's lives. P&G is a great company, tremendous training ground. But J&J, I really felt like I was making a bigger difference. And that sort of catapulted me, obviously, to spend the rest of my career in healthcare. And where did you go after J&J? J&J, I was recruited to Pharmacia by Fred Hassan, who many people in the industry have known. And he had actually recruited me to Pharmacia in late 1999 to, you know, he was going to groom me to be the next, basically his successor. In the meantime, Pfizer came along and bought us. So, uh, so that plan, I left my stable world of J&J, went to Pharmacia, you know, thought, okay, this is great. And then that, uh, that plan changed. But in the meantime, it actually, it's funny how things like that create opportunities. There was a member of the board of Pharmacia who was also on the board of Stryker. Right. And connected me with truly one of the legends of our industry, John Brown. And that's what led me out to Kalamazoo, Michigan and out to Stryker and, into my formative medical device experience because I yeah. never had any any time in medical devices be prior to Stryker. And did you follow John into that CEO role at Stryker? I did. Yeah, I did. About eight years at yes. Stryker as well. Yeah. Yes. In- yes. Impressive run. I say this in my intro, but you grew the revenue there. I think you tripled the revenue at Stryker over about an eight-year period of time through a number of acquisitions and then just tremendous growth as well. It's Really impressive what you did there. Yeah, I would say what we did there. Yeah. You know, I inherited an amazing company from John Brown. And, you know, he built it. It was also, you know, a lot of good years. The orthopedic industry was was doing well. But I was really proud of what we did. We certainly broadened the company and, you know, achieved a lot, went much more global during those times. And then I recruited Kevin Lobo into yeah. the company out of Johnson and Johnson. And I'm in Incredibly proud of what Kevin, you know, our former chairman at Advomed has done right. you know, really since I left, what's now close to nine years ago, actually yeah. probably over nine years ago. So he's continued a tremendous run at a great company. And John Brown was clearly the, the foundation. I like to think we built on it and, and created a lot of opportunities for the future. But Kevin's done an amazing job since. Yeah. You know, I had lunch with John Brown when I first took over this job at Advomed, and it was one of the most enjoyable hour, hour and a half I spent, I think, with a former CEO. His experience and sort of his wisdom and his grace, the way he conducted himself, I was just so impressed with. And I I wonder, Steve, what did you learn from him that you've kind of carried over in your career for these years going forward? Boy, it's hard to describe how many things I learned from him. First, as he was still CEO for my first year and a half, and then he was chairman for another five. But, you know, I'd probably boil it down to a few things. One was he very much focused, and he he taught me the phrase, there's the what and the how. Mm. And as he said, a lot of people can figure out the what, but figuring out the how 
is really the complicated part and to do the how in the right way. So, you know, I think there was clearly that, you know, you also saw John as a man of, of few words. He's the kind of person, certainly, when he talks, you want to make sure you're listening. Yeah. Um, you could probably do the same podcast. That he'd be a lot crisper in his communication, <laughs> but just, you know, tremendous. And he set the bar high. You know, it yeah. was very much like the Bear Bryants or the, the great coaches the John Woodens of, you know, the years, which has set the bar high and people will rise to it and take chances on people. Yeah. He took a huge chance on me. If you looked at the profile of what they were looking for, somebody to replace a 30-year CEO of an orthopedic company, you want somebody who understands orthopedics, somebody who understands medical devices. Right. I had none of those. But he looked at me and thought, okay, there is leadership, there's character, there's certain things here. And for a guy to come in to try to replace me, which is not going to be easy, that person's also got to be able to really build the followership. Right. And I think, you know, John understood really well. I remember one time we were talking about a person who just wasn't working out as a president at Stryker. And John said to me as we were assessing why he wasn't working. I goes, you know what? His problem is he fell in love with his business card. Mm. He fell in love with that president title and forgot what got him there. Right. And what got him there was building followership, but suddenly started ordering people around and things like that. And, you know, as you could see with John, he's the same person when he stepped down, obviously with a lot of accomplishments. Right. Right. So gravitas but he never forgot where he came from. Yeah, that's great advice. I also remember him saying, and I may not get this quite right, but he said something to the effect, I always expected a lot of people to work hard, but I always expected myself to work that hard or harder too. And he felt like he did that, right? He was an incredibly hard worker, right? Just really grinding it out. There is nobody that worked harder. It was he and I making the coffee in the morning, often closing down the... uh, office at night. And he did. He led by example. He did not expect anybody else to do anything that he wouldn't do. Yeah. What a great legacy he leaves behind and what a great experience it was for you to to learn from him, which has uh, obviously served you very well in your career since. So oh, I've tried to put a lot of the lessons I learned from him in place. So. Yeah. What took you to your current spot at Whole Logic? And tell us a little bit about your journey there. It's been amazing what you all have accomplished at Whole Logic in your time as CEO. Yeah, it's been an, an amazing experience. I mean, oddly, it was, you know, I'd left Stryker and was just kind of dabbling in small private company stuff when uh, Carl Icahn had actually gotten very involved and engaged with Hologic and had bought 12% of the company, was threatening to break it up. It was kind of a, a real mess at the time with the boardroom and Icon and everything else. And I was sort of the board and Carl's solution to bring somebody in with a proven track record. And, you know, the fascinating part was obviously I hadn't necessarily done a turnaround at Stryker. Stryker didn't need a turnaround. Stryker was really take a great company and, you know, accelerate it even further. Whole Logic was a complete turnaround. The, the revenues were falling, sales were, you know, profits, sales, everything was falling, and it was a little disarray at the time. But it gave me truthfully 
the great opportunity to almost be a little bit what John Brown was to Stryker. Yeah. You know, trying to follow a legend like John, it was still John's company, right. even after me being there almost a decade in a leadership role, uh, you know, mostly as CEO. But there was still his. And I think the magic for me at Hologic really has been a couple of things. One is I feel like I've been able to make a massive difference for the company. And it's also, it was really my first time truly in diagnostics. Mm-hmm. And because it's women's health and diagnostics, it's been even more relevant to me in that my own mother, you know, was diagnosed with breast cancer back in 97. She's had two bouts with it. And to be suddenly at the company that is the leading company in diagnosing and helping so many people with breast cancer, with cervical cancer, the fact that I was really raised by two women, you know, my mom right. and my older sister, it's allowed my own passion and purpose to, I think, just be that much stronger than anything I'd ever imagined. Right. So it's like right. each step has been further along. J&J was great from P&G. Striker was great from J&J. And then Hologic for me has been sort of the ultimate pinnacle of just making a huge difference in the world. It's amazing what you've accomplished. I want to talk about one specific area. You have a vision for Hologic that's bigger than just Hologic necessarily, but sort of changing the world and how you diagnose and treat women's health issues. And you've launched, as I understand it, this Global Women's Health Index. Can you talk about that a little bit? What such an interesting thing to do and, and the impact that can have on global health can be just tremendous. Talk about that. What led you to that? Yeah, it's actually something that I, I really am very proud of what we are doing and our team is doing. And it, it stems really from that passion. And that passion, you know, we basically have our purpose, our passion, our promise. Our purpose is enabling healthier lives everywhere, every day. And let's face it, a lot of healthcare companies have, you know, similar things. Then we distilled our passion is becoming champions of women's health, global champions of mm-hmm. women's health. And the magic that drives that is what can we do? Because women's health issues are still always in so many ways neglected. Yeah. And so we thought there's no real data out there. And as you well know, and we're a diagnostics company, our industry is very data driven. You've been you right. know, a tremendous leader in that. We thought if we create the data, And so we literally went out, we partnered with Gallup and Gallup does a world poll every year. And we partnered with Gallup. We spent probably a year, year and a half getting this ready to where we're going out in 116 countries and asking thousands of people, women and men every year now. And we started it just this past year about the state of women's health. Right. And we're just on the verge of launching. Basically, we now have the results. We're tabulating and finalizing the results where we're going to be able to give reports to the Minister of Health of each of these countries and show the areas where they may be falling short. So, you know, for example, a country says, hey, they want 50 percent of their women screened for breast cancer, you know, every two years. Well, what are the realities? Because the data is not out there. And also it's going to show disparities among countries. It's less about showing that, but it's back to what gets measured gets acted on. Right. And 
I believe fundamentally that there are so many areas that women's health continues to get ignored or not the same attention because so many of the policymakers have been men. Right. And this will create the data and a roadmap to allow them to start to pay more attention to women's health. Yeah. That's fantastic, Steve. We've talked about this before, but early diagnostics in women's health is probably the most important thing to improving health outcomes at the end of the day, right? It's real simple. Take that, especially breast and cervical cancer. These are both eminently treatable if you find them early. And the magic right. of finding breast cancer or cervical cancer or you know any cancers, but let's focus on these two. If you find them early, it frankly is far less disruptive. To the, you know, you can treat the patient. My mom's case, in both cases, they got the breast cancer very early. So you're able to treat it. You know, she's still alive today, 24 years after, you know, almost 25 years after her first bout with breast cancer. Right. And, you know, it's less disruptive to the patient. You can treat it. When it goes late, it's far more disruptive to the patient's life. It's also, frankly, a lot more expensive to the healthcare system. Right. Right. So it's a complete win-win finding early diagnosis and being able to then intervene early. Yeah. And that's what's being you know really missed in a lot of cases around the world. A lot of countries don't even have still breast cancer screening programs. Yeah, They yeah, wait gonna... until a lump has been discovered and then they go in and they have a mammogram and, and discover that, hey, it might be stage three cancer right. because they don't have the simple things put in place yet. Yeah, I was gonna ask Steve, how well has it been received by the ministers of health and the country leaders that you've talked to or have you had those conversations yet? We're literally going to be starting to roll those out just in the coming months. The data is being finalized. We've been able to have just a couple of headline discussions with a few countries, and they've been fascinating just as the data is rolling out. But we haven't, we were actually going to unveil it. It's of such significance that the World Economic Forum, you know, what everybody knows is the annual Davos meeting, but the World Economic Forum invited Hologic this year into the forum. So we were actually going to roll it out. They'd moved the Davos meeting from January to supposed to be next month in Singapore. And they just canceled that again because of the rising COVID cases. Right. But we were going to roll it out and they wanted to help launch it, realizing the impact that it can have around the world. I mean, the funny part, I now say to our employees, this is a basically may become our biggest product of having yeah. an impact on global health, but it's not something we'll ever monetize. You know, it's not a product like a mammography machine or, you know, right. a pap test or an HPV test, but I truly think it will help guide policymakers around the world. So we're just in the early stages and, and we'll be rolling it out now. It'll be more in the kind of September, October time okay. frame because the Davos meeting got canceled. Well, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's obvious what a great impact it'll have on women's health globally when it is rolled out. So congratulations to you and your team for doing this and the leadership. Just tremendous. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You also have another project, Project Health Equality, I think is what it's called. And it's different, but similar in what you're doing. Bigger than just one company and, and focused on broader issues, right? Yes. You know, what's fascinating, and we'd never intended it, but the timing of doing the, the Global Women's Health Index, by definition, all of the interviews really occurred late last year, early this year, which happened to be when COVID was yeah. going on. 
And among the other things, and certainly a lot of the early findings that we are getting out of the Women's Health Index is, you know, really probably two things. One is women's health has taken a step back in the last year and a half Mm. because in many cases, right, the women were the first ones to stay home in many societies to take care of the kids that were now being homeschooled. And many, you know, women put their own health on hold to take care of the family. So years and years of progress on women's health. And then that same disparity is far greater among women of color Mm. and particularly in the United States, but even globally, but particularly in the United States, if you think about a lot of the inner city health clinics, many of them either closed down or shifted all of the resources from, for example, doing STI testing, you know, sexually transmitted infectious testing to suddenly doing COVID testing. Right. And so what you've seen is this incredible disparity and there were already disparities. A black woman is, you know, twice as likely to die of breast cancer as a white woman in the United States. So there's been, you know, some of these issues that have been there over time. So we've partnered with the Black Women's Health Imperative and Mm. a few other organizations. And the goal is really to, particularly in a lot of the inner cities and other areas, be able to help effectively fund getting more women in to be screened for combinations of STIs, cervical cancer, mammography, clearly breast cancer screenings. And it's a multi-year effort that we think will also be able to make a big difference. And it just comes back to that being global champions of women's health and recognizing there's particularly you know, some audiences that aren't getting adequate coverage in the U.S. What can we do to make a difference there? Yeah, that's fantastic. It's a reminder, Steve, of why we're in this business, right? It's the ability to do things and make products and manufacture products that really do change people's lives. It's not just a job for most of us, right? It's doing something much bigger than ourselves. And you're doing that at Whole Logic. It's very impressive. You know, it's part of what I love about working in this industry. And you know, I, I get goosebumps as just talking to you about it as I think about we have so many young people in the in the world today that want to that right everybody wants to make a difference in the world and many right. of them want to look to go work for nonprofits or you know NGOs because they feel like they can make a difference there i'll make a compelling case to every college kid coming out saying if you want to make a big difference come work for a company right like whole logic or so many in our industry we're making a difference and we have the resources right and no ngo ever put together this global women's health index. Yeah. Right. The resources of a private company, the dedication to do that. And I continue to believe that the private sector, as we did during COVID time, everything else that you were such a part of, the private sector can make a massive difference in the world right. and do good. Right. So, Your company's proof of it. It's a nice transition to COVID. And the challenges that that we've all faced as a country and globally, right, with this disease. But Steve, you were right in the middle of it early on, right, in February of 2020 and into March of 2020, when uh, the pandemic hit us, the government kind of fumbled the ball, right, on creating a diagnostic test to diagnose this and came to us as an industry and said, what can you do? You were one of, if not the leading company to step up early and begin manufacturing tests to diagnose this disease. Talk about that from your perspective. You can't ever be prepared fully for a pandemic situation like that, but your company performed so well during that time. It was truly 
exhilarating, exhausting. It was unlike any experience I'd ever had in my life, Scott. As you alluded to, people kind of forget that at first the CDC said, okay, we're going to develop a test, and there were issues with the CDC test. And at the end of the day, then suddenly the private sector needed to come. And and people forget, but you lived it because I know you and I spent countless, if people ever understood how hard you were working during that time, the number of times you called me at home on Saturdays and Sundays and, and through the week as we were both working with the government in the U.S. and, you know, ultimately around the world trying to get going. So the, the fascinating part is our scientists, and it's where you just saw the unbelievable passion. Our scientists worked round the clock as, and the FDA was phenomenal as well, that we both developed really two different tests. One that was a PCR-based test, and then we have basically a higher throughput technology that transcription-mediated amplification, effectively it's another nucleic acid test that we developed, which was the real breakthrough. And our teams, you know, what I was so proud of is our teams showed up for work every day, but the demands from the world were unlike anything we'd ever yeah. experienced, right? First and foremost, there was no bigger issue on the evening news every night than yeah. testing. Supply chains and people suddenly thought, well, why don't we have all these tests? And, you know, people never understood what it took to make stuff. By the way, simple things like swabs, tubes, yeah. caps. The media never understood supply chains, nor did a lot of the politicians. Yeah, that's right. And there was also the hue and cry from many in, you know, the media and even in Washington to say, hey, the government should take this over. Right. And I'll forever be grateful to you who was on the front lines of trying to help us help that not happen because that right. would have been the biggest disaster ever. But I was literally during that time, both running the company, we're making bets, we're scaling up, our team's coming to work every day. I came to work every day. You know, I've never worked remotely yeah. through this entire thing because our teams were here and I wanted to be there with them. That was was critically important. We were making decisions on the fly and we were talking, there were literally days and Kevin Thornall was leading our diagnostics business, continues to lead it. Right. There were days where we were speaking to a dozen governors. Right. You know, I was on, you know, calls with the White House task force. Kevin to be talking to the governors of Ohio and Georgia. And we had Congress people calling and it was literally triage. Right. Which I'd never experienced. And as a CEO, you're typically not making decisions by the hour. Yeah, we were making decision commitment. We were talking to every customer, every governor. We were, you know, literally trying to allocate who needs tests, you know, as we got them. And it was just unlike anything I'd ever dealt with. And then we had the whole international component. I'm getting letters yeah. from Boris Johnson, from Jakinda Ardern down in New Zealand asking for product. And, you know, we were trying to fill the world's needs as our teams were ramping up. And ultimately, we used to make about 7 million tests a month across all of our product line, all of the STIs, everything else, we ramped up at our peak and got to 25 million tests. Wow. Thank God we're in San Diego because our parking lot was filled with pallets of incoming, outcoming. You know, it was just truly unlike anything I had ever experienced in my career. And I feel like you know, we made a massive difference. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it was the private sector coming to the rescue, developing the tests. Yeah. Well, and, there's no, they're ultimately the same with the vaccines that come from yeah. the private sector. Yeah, there's no question you made a huge difference. I don't know where we would be today without companies 
by Kologic and a few others as well, right, if you had not stepped up. Steve, I, I wonder, you had to make some very tough decisions very, very quickly if you're talking about scaling up and to some degree probably scaling down other production in order to massively scale up for COVID diagnostic production. Can you talk about some of those decisions that you had to make that were crucial as you're watching the supply and demand and the requirements coming in from the government agencies as well? Yeah, it was probably, the funny part was when we got our first test approved, we had the capacity of making maybe 600,000 tests a month. And we thought that would be relative to anything else we made, that was going to be an enormous number. We later did, you know, literally 20 or 30 fold, those kinds of things. So Kevin and I, we joke that our offices are about 60, 70 feet apart. And we just wore a, uh, in the rug, just a pathway during that time of, we're literally making decisions with our vendors here, please go make more of, you know, everything. We had to make new machines to make our caps and new machines for this and that. And I was so proud too. and, And I think it speaks to our industry. So many of our vendors from around the world, they all rallied. They worked yeah. overtime. And, mm-hmm. you know, these are people that to literally make machines that make caps that go on the little right. tube. They were working round the clock to produce more machines, you know, and they could have been staying at home too during uh, all of that. You know, we were making bets. I knew we wouldn't get everything right. And probably some of the hardest piece was literally the demands from every customer, every right. state. And literally, you'd have a governor calling and saying, look, I need X amount for my state, the heck with the other state, right? right? So you had this unbelievable, you know, 50 different governors calling you and negotiating and, right. and, and then the customers in those states. And then everybody who has a contact that knows somebody calling on behalf yeah. of yeah. them and governors calling constantly, it was unlike anything. And, and we just... What I'm really proud of, and I think it has served us well, is we tried never to overpromise. Yeah. And I think it's back to just the honesty in our organization. And I think in general across our industry, even when people wanted more, you know, we walked away from a lot of coverage. We said, look, here's what we can provide you. We can provide you, call it, you know, 20,000 tests a week. They'd say, well, we want 100,000. Somebody else is going to get us 100,000, some company from outside the country, whatever might. And we said, that's fine. You go with them. And literally every single one of them, and it's played out across the world with countries that said, hey, we didn't choose you necessarily up front because you didn't, you said you couldn't provide everything. But they've all come back to us because ultimately we provided what we said. And our tests work so well, and they're very highly automated. Right. And incredibly accurate, you know, in a right. world when not everything was as accurate and everything else. And it's raised the profile of Hologic on a global basis. Also, frankly, beyond anything I ever could have imagined, things like getting into the World Economic Forum and right. just the ministers of health around the world. It's been pretty special for our team. And, and it was incredibly motivating for our team working on what was the issue du jour. Right. You know, if you think about our diagnostics business that generally makes HPV tests, sexually transmitted infections, these people come to work every day, they make these, it's never on the news. Right. right. And suddenly our employees were going home at night. And this was at a time when a lot of people were staying at home and, and families are questioning, hey, why are you going to work? This and that. 
and our employees were going home every night and seeing on the news test supply and availability is the critical issue the world is facing and right. the pride of rallying for that it's hard to yeah fully describe and, and you as a leader of the industry you know that had so many companies doing similar things is, is pretty special yeah it's a great story and it's so good that we were able to be a part of it in some way to help make the world a little bit better steve i've always wondered during the height of this crisis, I'm sure your employees were energized by the work, but there had to be some level of exhaustion that set in at some point as well. And keeping the company and your employees and your leaders motivated and engaged is a hard thing to do during a crisis. As you look back, are there some lessons you've learned there that will be instructive for you going forward and for the rest of us as well? Yeah, it's because we did talk a lot about we were kind of running what was increasingly feeling like a 5K, a 10K or a marathon right, at sprint right. speed right. and trying to literally, we submitted our final emergency use authorization at three in the morning on a Saturday or by, mm. by that point it was Sunday right. morning right. and the teams were so energized. We were trying to say to people, hey, pace yourself. But I think what it does speak to, the power of the purpose and passion, when you're working on the most important thing, I think what's amazing is the deep reservoir that our employees tapped into of energy. Unbelievable efforts that we also completely recognized both during the time, and we recognized financially, we did some unprecedented things for all of our manufacturing workers and everybody that showed up through it. What we've tried to do coming out of it is saying, okay, we learned what we can do in our, if you could scale from 7 million tests to 25 million tests. Right. And, you know, the first plan was we were looking at a plan to get from seven to like 10 or 12 million. We ended up getting to, to 25 within eight or nine months. That when everybody aligns on the goal and everybody is moving quickly, you can move a lot of mountains. Yeah. You're not spending a lot of time in meetings and task forces and you right. know, a whole bunch of stuff. We just did and acted and we took some risks. We knew, you know what, we're going to end up with some excess inventory that we're going to have to deal with probably at some point because who knows what the curve of this is going to be. And what I tried to do as a leader even with my supply chain people, I said, look, you have a get out of jail free card on inventory. Because yeah. as you know, supply chain people are always, rightly so, they're balancing. Right. And so I think as leaders, we have to take the risk and take the pressures off of some of our teams to allow them to play freely and do what needs to be done. Uh, we told our vendors, look, we'll take care of you. You know what, if we end up overbuilding, we made commitments to buy more supply than what we might need in order to make sure we were taking care of them. So I think so much of it is if we take care of each other yeah. and respond, we work. Now it's managing a little bit on that other side of, of coming down and people trying to get a little bit of energy or, you know. Right rest. And, and we told some people, look, you go take some vacation. You know, you yeah. need a, we had so many people during that time, they wouldn't even want to take off. And so right. they delayed some things, but it was truly heroic efforts by 
regulatory operate, you know, just everybody coming together and it can be done. It is hard to create that urgency all the time. So we're trying to find those ways to bottle that energy as you need it, but recognize you can't have everybody operating at that pace. Yeah. That's not sustainable either. Yeah. You know, Steve, it, it strikes me, it must be rewarding to look back on this in one sense, because you can't execute the way you executed without having a culture that's prepared to execute that way. And so you've clearly built a culture inside of Whole Logic that allowed you to transition from normal to urgent and operate that way for basically a year, right? That must be very rewarding to look back on. It really is. I think that probably the part that I'm really pleased with is the culture at Whole Logic today versus, you know, kind of what it was eight-ish years ago. And a right. lot of it is just, it's the leaders that we've either promoted or developed or have come in. We never could have done in diagnostics what we did without Kevin Thornall as yeah. the division president. You know, right. you know, Kevin, yeah. Kevin, unbelievable energy, unbelievable stamina, but also an incredible team builder. Right. And, you know, even in the past, you always have fights between, you know, the salespeople and the operation, you know, Picture when the largest customers, the Quest, the LabCorp, all of our customers are screaming at our salespeople for more product, Yeah. right? In the past, the salespeople would have been wanting to scream at the operations people, but Kevin had built such a great team of working together and everybody understanding, and, and our salespeople really were turning more into having to manage their customers down in expectation, and, and really we were on an allocation principle. Right. And then occasionally we would be planning to ship somewhere and then we'd get a call from Dr. Burks or the task force of, hey, wait, there's a spike in Louisiana. Can you reallocate some supply to Louisiana? And the, the teams just worked so well. But a frankly, a leader like Kevin thought, yeah, this is not me. It's leaders like Kevin and everything else in our organization that ultimately have created that whole approach of teamwork of pride throughout the company and it has been incredibly rewarding yeah it's just a great great story to reflect back on i was also looking recently steve at the diagnostic registry data that we produced during this period of time which kevin and your team was so instrumental in helping set up for us it really did help inform the government on where we were week after week on building supply And if you put all the numbers together, I think we're over a billion tests manufactured by this industry. An unbelievable number and shipped all over the world. I mean, just amazing what we've done in a year. And you were at the top of the list of leaders of companies who helped us get there. It's an incredible story of success. Thank you. You know, even forming that registry, as you look, it's a little bit of a microcosm and and you and and Susan, the whole team at AdMed, if you think about the way the industry came together, we never would have formed a registry, right? We formed yeah. that in a matter of weeks. Yeah. And right. the industry came together in an unprecedented way. If, if we try to just let's go set up a registry and anything else, right? It's going to take six, 12 months, right? We did that in literally days and weeks right. instead of months and years. Right. And it has provided such important information that I think the hidden part of all of that that not everybody will understand is how much work you did to try to help and Advmed did on our behalf. If, if there was ever a time where I appreciated 
you and Advomet even more than ever was when the government was literally talking about trying to take over testing. Yeah. And as we made our case of that would be the biggest colossal failure because yeah. these tests aren't interchangeable, no. right? A hologic test, you know, has to be run on a hologic machine and the same for Abbott, right, right? All these kind of different things. And the registry, I think, also helped provide something else to be able to, to speak to the government people about and, and allowed us to have another vehicle to help ward off right. what I think would have been a disaster, both for the country and the industry. Yeah, with another example of the private sector stepping up where there was a gap in government information, right? Just it's, like you yeah. did on the front end when the CDC test kind of failed. We did midway through on the supply chain and the supplies more broadly. Uh, they embraced it and it was great. And, but that's why the public sector and the private sector have to stay so connected, right? One's not more important than the other, but we've got to stay so connected, which you talked about right up front. It's the key to creating a better world, right? When both are connected that way. It truly is, you know, and I think this has been, you know, combined with the vaccines, right? It's yeah. And I, I do worry, you know, you know, you and I have talked about it. I worry at times people think government's the answer to everything. Yeah. And I do think it is it's government and industry in the right partnership. Right. And it's not industry and profit is bad right. and government is good. It's right. hey, let's work together. When the country has worked together and when countries have worked together, government and industry together, that's where you've seen the biggest progress in standards of living, in healthcare, everything. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That is definitely right. Steve, transitioning away from COVID for the last couple minutes here that we have you, what's the future look like for Hologic now that the pandemic is a bit behind us and you're getting back to normal business, but what's the future for you over the next five or 10 years and your company? I think it's more exciting than it ever has been. And in a weird way, I want to say this the right way, but in a weird way, how we responded to COVID gave us the opportunity to totally elevate our profile. Yeah. And we've been predominantly still a stronger U.S. company, and we weren't as well known outside, particularly Western Europe, Asia. Because of our response to COVID and being a major supplier of COVID tests to the UK government, Germany, France, you know, every country in Europe, you know, we supplied to over 40 key countries in the world and, and Asia. Our profile has gone up. And we were also, while we were doing all of the, the response, we also used some of our proceeds to make some key acquisitions. And so we've broadened our platform. We, we acquired a couple of companies in Europe earlier this year in the diagnostic space that'll broaden our footprint. We acquired a, a, an oncology company, a diagnostic here in San Diego. So we now have, frankly, a broader presence, both product-wise and geography-wise. Our reputation is higher such that we can now talk to the health ministers around the world that we never could. And I think combined with bringing out the Global Women's Health Index, it's an exciting time to be at Hologic because I feel like, A, we're influencing women's health globally and policy, and then the company is broader and having a bigger impact on lives. And you know, the one thing I say to our employees all the time is, the bigger we get, the more lives we are able to impact. 
mm. every day. Yeah. So our growth as a company inextricably leads to more positive, you know, the ability to affect more lives. It's just a cool thing. So I'm unbelievably energized and, and feel really fortunate to have the team that I have and, and the businesses that we have. Well, Steve, that's a great story. And I've enjoyed learning and watching you and my time as AdvoMed CEO. It's been an honor to serve beside you during this time of crisis and, and watch you lead a company. And the future is incredibly exciting for Hologic. And uh, I'm excited to watch the next five or 10 years. I'll also say you said early you were raised by two women. Those two women must be awfully proud of uh, Steve McMillan and what you've accomplished in your career. I'm sure they're grateful for that, and we all are, and all women in this country and around the world grateful for your leadership and what those two women raised, a, a good person, and we're glad to have you as part of this industry. Oh, thank you, Scott, and thank you for all that you and the whole admin team do all the time to help us all. Thank thanks you. For, and thanks for joining us today. That wraps it up, and look forward to seeing you again soon, Steve. All right. Thank you, Scott. Bye-bye. For those of you listening, thanks for tuning in. For more episodes, visit advamed.org slash podcast or subscribe to MedTech POV on your favorite streaming platform. Until next time, this is Scott Whitaker. Have a great day.